Well, hey, let's do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the last chapter of a relatively short book. Um, some of the chapters have been longer than others. Certainly, I think, I, I think uh, chapter 13 might be the shortest chapter in the entire book. And so we don't have a lot of meat left on the bone. And if you're familiar with Paul's epistles at all, um, there, there's a normally, there's a, I don't want to say a flowery because that, that, that seems like it's just kind of fluff. But there's normally an elongated, hey, goodbye, and an elongated, hey, I'm writing a letter to you at the front end of the book. And uh, so some of, I think there's only 13 verses, uh, some of the verses in this chapter um, are going to be dedicated to that particular use. And uh, so we will see some of that as Paul closes out the book uh, in just a few moments. So let's go ahead and turn there. Um, we, uh, it's been a great book. I've enjoyed this book. Uh, but it is one of those books. I'll say this about the book before we close. Um, it is one of those books I wish we didn't need, um, but unfortunately, it is a very human nature thing to fight over things that don't matter, and uh, so it is for that reason, I believe, that God chose to include it in what we would call the canon of Scripture, the, 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 what God picked for us to have. We were talking just a moment ago um, uh, with the sound guys about, we've already introduced this idea, this is not the second letter written to the Corinthians, it's at very least the third and quite possibly the fourth letter written, but God didn't choose for us to have those intermediate books in the, in the middle. But he did choose for us to have this particular book. And I believe with all my heart, the reason we have it is because of what it contains. And what it contains is some pretty sharp rebuke on a church that is fighting about things that don't matter. They're not dividing over doctrine, which again, doctrine can and oftentimes should be divisive. Uh, in fact, Paul says it this way, that it is necessary that, that heresies come so that we know who to believe and who not to believe. And uh, that's not the content of this book. That was the content of the previous books we had had studied uh, Jude and some of the, I think it was First and Second Peter, that dealt with doctrinal heresy, whether in the church or outside of the church trying to come in. This one dealt entirely with just personality disputes, uh, people being critical of leadership for reasons that didn't count, that didn't matter uh, in the least bit. And so it's a very human nature, a very fallen human nature thing to be contentious, to be comparative, uh, to try to, you know, commend ourselves uh, while we kind of, uh, you know, point a finger at them. And, and it is a very natural thing to measure uh, someone else's inabilities greater than our inabilities, isn't it? Uh, we, have, we all have weaknesses. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, every single person in this room has weaknesses. And every one of what we've, what Paul titled, not we've titled, but what Paul has titled as the chief ones, every one of them had, uh, had weaknesses. Every one of them wasn't a perfect Christian, wasn't a perfect man, wasn't a perfect leader. And yet what we see through this book is that they have reduced their flaws and exaggerated the Apostle Paul's flaws. Um, they have exaggerated their abilities and reduced the abilities of Paul. And that's a pretty normal thing to do. We tend to look at our weaknesses with grace and our strengths with pride. We tend to look at other people's weaknesses with pride and their strengths with a measure of like, yeah, it's probably not as good as it looks. It's probably fake. It's probably astroturf. It's, you know, uh, Paul wasn't really an apostle, which seems to be kind of what was happening here. So we discredit other people's strengths. We exaggerate our own strengths. We exaggerate their weaknesses and discredit our weaknesses at the same time saying, well, you know, we're all human, right? But that didn't apply to their view of, of, of Paul here. And so this isn't a, Cor a Corinthian problem. It's a humanity-wide problem. And so that is the reason we have this book. Now, 
the last few chapters have been kind of heavy-handed, right? And uh, this chapter specifically, uh, Paul ends the letter with a bit of a warning. And uh, if I'm the Corinthians receiving this letter, I'm scared of when Paul comes. Um, He told them in the last chapter that I desire to come to you this third time. He's going to tell them again. He's going to actually open the chapter uh, by mentioning the third time I'm coming to you. And he tells them what's going to happen when he comes. And uh, it's a little bit like, in my estimation, it's a little bit like a mom saying, you wait till your dad gets home. Um, That's what the letter feels like. Paul says, we'll deal with this when I get there. And uh, when I get there, We'll make all things known. And uh, so it's a little bit heavy-handed. The last few chapters have been a little bit difficult. And not, not because they're not inspired, because they are. They're beautiful. Uh, but Paul, we, men- we mentioned and we learned that Paul played the game of the fool, right? He, he played the game of qualifying himself and leading with his credentials. And, and let me just say again, um, don't be that person. Um, I don't know, and I don't want you to think of anybody who's ever done this. But it's ha- I've, I've seen it happen a handful of times in my Christianity where uh, I remember one particular time, not a church member, not anybody, anybody, I would I couldn't even pick the man out of a lineup. Uh, he was here for a special service from another church in town, and he walked up to me at the door. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. And he said, hey, I'm whatever my name is. I'm, a, I'm an elder at the church over here. And it was like he pulled his card at the gate, like, let me just tell you who I am and, and how awesome I am. And uh, that, is not a, that is not a Jesus quality. And uh, Jesus didn't walk around announcing his Messiahship, though he very well could have. Um, he preached. He taught. He was in the congregation. And Paul didn't walk around announcing his apostleship either. And that's not something that we should do. Uh, we shouldn't credential ourselves. Well, I'm a, I'm a deacon at Faith Baptist Church. Just want to introduce myself. Don't, don't do that. These are, these are, there are positions that God's people can hold, but those positions buy us no credibility. Uh, they don't buy us any clout. They, don't, they shouldn't buy us any respect or honor. Um, we ought to be humble and take upon us the form of a servant as Jesus did. Okay? So let's jump into our passage. Like I said, there's not a lot there. Uh, it's a shorter chapter, so we may be uh, out here a little bit early, but let's uh, see what we can do about that. Verse number one says, this is the third time. I am coming to you in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, if you recognize that last phrase, it's from Deuteronomy. And uh, he says, hey, on trial, in order to put someone to death or to hold someone uh, really like in a, in a civil or in a, a, a criminal suit where, where the, the punishment isn't just money, but like someone's going to die, you need two or three witnesses. It'd be better to let someone off free with just one witness. You're going to need two or three witnesses if you're going to take someone life, which is the opening statement of Paul's (laughs) closing thoughts. Like, hey, by the way, whenever you go to court, you need three people to, uh, to take someone's life. Let's keep reading. He says, I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time and being absent now, I write to them, which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will spare, I will not spare Um, that's a lot of kind of, I don't want to say flowery words, but that's a lot in one sentence. But here's what the Apostle Paul just said. He said, hey, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything gets established. And when I come back, when I show up again this third time, uh, there will be more than two or three witnesses who saw what happened the last time I was there. That painful visit. And uh, he said, I wrote this letter to you. And uh, look at verse number two again there in the middle. He says, as if I were present the second time and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all others. He said, I'm writing this letter to deal with those in the church who've caused this schism, who have sinned. And I'm not just writing to the chief ones. I'm writing to all of you that if I come again, I will spare not. Now, you remember what uh, Paul said, or they said about Paul's letters? They said, well, his letters are weighty, but his bodily, but his, in his presence, he's weak. 
His voice is contemptible and, and his, his, you know, his speech is contemptible and his bodily presence is weak. So he, he pretends to be strong in person but not, not, or, or in letter but not in person. And Paul says, well, I'm telling you now. There'll be enough witnesses there when I come again that I will establish this. And as I am in letters, so I will be in person. And I will deal with this when I come. Look at verse number three. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty to you. He says it this way. He says, I'm only taking this tone. I only have to do this. I'm only going to do this when I come. And I only wrote you this letter because... You apparently need my credentials. You apparently need me to prove myself to you, which Christ in me was already seen by you. It was seen mighty in you. Uh, Your church was birthed because of Christ's anointing on my life. Because of my apostleship, the gospel came uh, to Corinth. And uh, verse number four, he says, for though he was crucified through weakness. Now he's going to compare... Well, I'll be careful I say this. Paul's not comparing himself with Christ. What he's saying is Christ in weakness was strong. I in weakness am strong. And the only reason he is addressing weakness is because this is not an attribute that is admired by the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church, they have, what did the, what did the Bible say? They've in, they suffered fools gladly. They were the ones who wanted the big, the proud, the, the bombastic, the, 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 the loud. They wanted that. And Paul says, you've measured weakness as a flaw. You've measured my suffering as a flaw. But I want you to realize that the suffering of Christ was not a flaw either. That was Jesus bringing you the gospel, which is exactly why Paul was weak. Because in his weakness, God's strength was made perfect, and they were able to receive the gospel. Look at verse 4 again. For though he was uh, uh, crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. He says, so, so if you're measuring someone suffering in the gospel as a bad thing then you're measuring the suffering of Jesus as a bad thing. Uh, Jesus didn't come and and descend on top of, you know, the the temple mount uh, and announce his, you know, messiahship. No, he was born in obscurity. He was raised in a, in a, a village away from the, the, the center of, of Israel. And then he died in obscurity. And that weakness was the power of God unto salvation. Uh, and Paul's saying, hey, yes, you're measuring my inabilities as a bad thing, but they're not a bad thing. Christ used them mightily. Now, verse number five is a unique insight into the leader's heart toward these Christians. Look what he says. Look how he ends the letter. I don't want to say it's uncharacteristic, but it is certainly unique. Look what he says. In verse 5, totally totally separate from anything he said already. He hasn't brought this point up. He hasn't asked them to do this anywhere else. But in verse 5, he says, hey, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Let me liken it maybe to a parent. This is probably something that's shared maybe across the room. As a parent, as a leader of your own children, uh, there, there probably have been times where you've, if your child has ever professed faith in Christ, been saved and baptized, that later on sometimes you wonder, are they saved? Now, let me liken it to something more textually appropriate. As a pastor, there have been times I've looked out at Christians and thought, I don't know. Now, now, listen, that's not my job, and that's not what Paul's admonishing. He isn't saying, hey, you examine whether they are in the faith. But Paul's like, at the end of this letter, at the end of all that he's gone through, at the end of watching these people value foolishness over valuing the weakness and power of Christ, Paul says, hey, um, before we close the book, 
could you do yourself a favor and examine whether you're even in the faith? Can you check and see if you are in the faith? The word examine means this, to, uh, to lay hands and extensively test, to put hands on, to, to check the quality and metal of something, to make sure that it is what it claims to be. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we shop on Amazon, right? Uh, you shop on Amazon, you see a picture of something, you're like, yeah, that's going to be quality, and then it comes and it's just not quality. Until you put hands on it, you haven't examined it. You just saw a picture and read some reviews. Paul says, hey, from the outside looking in, I am a little bit concerned by what I'm seeing, by what I experienced in that painful visit. And I, I wonder if if you've ever taken the time to examine, to lay hands on your own conversion, and he says, examine yourself, uh, whether you be in the faith. Now, let me say this. In the faith, he isn't saying, I wonder if you've lost your salvation. He is saying, I wonder if you ever had it. I wonder if from the very beginning you were ever in the faith. Because once in the faith, you can't become out of the faith. You can't, unbe- you can't be unsaved. And so let me say this. It's not a bad thing. And I know that, I don't know why this is, but there have been times where I've preached on examining yourself, whether you're in the faith, where people get really uncomfortable with that. That's not a bad thing to do. It's not a bad thing to go back and just say, hey, am I saved? In fact, one of my kids came to me this, oh, was it yesterday or the day before, and said, we were talking about heaven um, at the dinner table. We were just going around the table talking about different things, I forget, and heaven was the topic. And one of my, my kids came to me and said, Dad, every time we talk about heaven, I get really concerned that I'm not going. And I said, well, why would, why would that be? And he said, I don't know. Now you know it's a boy, the gender away. Um, <laughs> And uh, why would that, why, you know, why would you be concerned about that? And we began to talk through that. And uh, I, I had him ask a series of questions I'm going to give to you. These are the questions you have to ask, am I in the faith? Are you ready? Uh, if you ever struggle with this, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. Um, if, you str- if you examine yourself and wonder, am I in the faith? That's not a quality of a lost person. Now, a lost person should wonder that, but saved people can go back and examine. Just, hey, let me make sure. And here's a couple of things you need to ask yourself. Here's the questions I asked my son. Number one, did you understand the record? And I get that phrase out of John, 1 John. The record. We have believed the record. Remember when it talks about the Father, the Son, these three agree in one. They are the witness of one. It's the record of Jesus. And so when you accepted Christ, did you understand the record? Did you believe the record? Number three, did you call out for salvation? And then the last question, the only one that remains to be asked is, can God lie? If the answer to the first three is yes, then the answer to the last one is absolutely no. And so how do you know if you're saved? Well, quite simply, when you heard about salvation, did you understand the record? Did you understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world? That Jesus was God in flesh, the Son of God incarnate on our planet? Did you understand that he died in your place to be your atonement, to be the propitiation for your sin? You don't have to maybe all understand all those words or definitions, but do you understand that Jesus was who he said he was and did? what he said he did. Yes, I understood that. Did you believe that he did that? Because you can understand that. There are plenty of atheists and, and uh, you know, intelligent people who understand the record of Jesus, but they don't believe it to be true. And so if you believe it to be true, and we believe the record, then did you ask for that? And, and I don't know exactly where that line lands between belief and calling out. I know that belief is what moves the, the ball across the, the line, but it says that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made known. Uh, and so I don't exactly know, and I don't know that anybody in the room could, could perfectly articulate where that happens, but from the heart I believe and with the mouth I confess and I call out to him. And if you did those things, then this morning... You are saved. And God can't lie. 
And God can't take it away. And surely you're going to sin and surely you're going to fall because I can promise you not everybody in the church in Corinth was saved, but I can also promise you not everybody in the church in Corinth was lost either. Yet they were all participating in this folly. And some of them might be because they were lost. Some of them might be because they're just acting like fools. And that's perfectly plausible. Uh, and let me, let me make this statement as well. Well, let's keep reading through the verse. Look at verse 5. He says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. That word prove means to test the sincerity and strength of something. And this is an important fact. Only you, finish the statement, can prevent forest fires. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Only you know if you're saved. But he does say right here, prove you your own selves. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Keep reading. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. He says this, you will know, and only you will know if you're saved. So you can come to me after service and say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. Do you think I'm saved? I can ask you those three questions, and if you can answer all of those, I still can't tell you if you're saved or not. Because you know if you are in Christ or if you're reprobates. Only you are going to know that. Um, I can't guarantee you are saved. I can't guarantee you're not saved. But if you can answer those three questions honestly, that yes, I, I understood the record, and yes, I believe the record, and yes, I called out to him for salvation, then according to the scriptures, question four, God cannot lie. And he said that he has saved you. But Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, how many of you have ever felt like you were not the child of God at times or two? Yep, that's me. Five o'clock every Sunday morning, I don't feel like I'm a child of God, right? And, uh, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes because of the way we've lived, we've quenched the Spirit. Sometimes because of the, the distance we've created between us and our Redeemer, we don't feel connected. But here's the thing. And we, again, we being evil parents know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more the Father in heaven, right? My son or my daughter could distance themselves from me. That doesn't mean they're not my child. It does mean the relationship is broken. It does mean the relationship needs repair, right? And that's why God's children come to him for forgiveness. Not because we've lost our sonship or childhood, but because we've breached the relationship and it needs to be restored, right? That's why God's people go to him in confession. That's why God's people go to him and ask for forgiveness. But again, he says, listen, know ye not yourselves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Um, Verse number six, but I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. This is an important truth coming away from that idea. Now he says, hey, if you test your own heart and find that you are indeed saved, he says, I'm telling you right now, that makes us brothers because we're not reprobates. He says, we're in Christ. And that's something that is so, it's a major theme across the book that just because, hey, how, number one, how am I become your enemies because I tell you the truth, Corinth. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in Jesus and I'm in Jesus, we are not enemies. Okay, And that's a universally true uh, uh, idea across Faith Baptist Church. No one in this family is your enemy. Nobody. It doesn't matter if they took your spot, if they were unkind to you, uh, if they did something you didn't agree with. No one in the family of God should be your enemy. Now, that that speaks true of Faith Baptist, but that also should speak true of, of God's people universally. That, hey, if we share the same dad, that makes us siblings, and no siblings should be enemies with each other. Um, and Paul says here to the church, hey, listen, I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. We are a part of the family of God. Now, look at verse 7, and he'll close out here. We're moving along. It says, now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, so, uh, though we be as reprobates. He says, you've, you've treated us poorly, but that's beside the point. My hope is, 
Not that you would, you would live in a way that's pleasing to us, even though you, you haven't liked us. He said, my hope is that you would do things right, that you wouldn't just appear to do things right, but do things right. Now, let's read it again so you can see what I, what, what I just kind of unpacked. He says, now, I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. He says, again, our goal in this is that you would walk rightly. Not that you would somehow, you know, try to appease and appear as right to us, but that you would do right. I pray that you would do right, not just do that which appears right. And that is crucial to a genuine Christianity. And parents, listen to that statement. Our goal as parents should be that our children would do right, not just do what appears to be right. Right? And, and I don't know, and I can't judge your parenting. I'm supposed to judge my own. Uh, but my hope is not to create children that look right on the outside, but inside have no heart for Jesus. And that, that can take many forms across Christianity. We can raise morally good kids who don't love Jesus. Completely possible. I would say it is far more likely that the people in this room, myself included, will raise morally good kids as opposed to raising children who have a heartbeat for Jesus. Because it's far easier to raise kids who, on the outward, do what's right. And maybe on the inward, believe that what they're doing is right. But it should be the desire of every parent to raise children who are in love with Jesus and the love of Christ be what constrains them, not the appearances of, I don't want to make dad look bad, I don't want to make mom look bad. Rather, we would raise kids who say, I love Jesus and therefore I can't. I love Jesus, therefore I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against my God. Even if I'm in a pagan country like Joseph, even if I'm in a pagan country like Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if I'm in a pagan country and it, they don't care if I do this, I can't sin against God. I could sleep with Potiphar's wife and nobody will ever know, but I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against God. That is a child who does not just have a moral compass, but has a faith and a love for Jesus. And that should ne- we should never replace the two. We should never conflate the two. And a lot of times it's easier to raise a moral kid and feel like, hey, we did our job. But that's not, I mean, that, that's the cart before the horse if ever there was. That is the fruit of Christianity without the root of Jesus, right? We want to train their heart to love Jesus. And from that place, then comes morality. Then comes marrying, right? Then comes, you know, all of the other fruits of Christianity. But we ought to be striving after a heart relationship with Jesus. And that's what Paul says here in Corinth. He says, hey, I don't want you to just do what we think is right. I don't want you just to appease and please us. We want you to do what is right. Verse number eight. And then he says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. So that's an important statement, and he's saying, hey, listen, everything you do that matters is, is recorded on the scoreboard of truth. In other ways, he's saying this. Think about it like this. There's two scoreboards. You can live your life and do what you want, but none of that counts. You can live your life and do what you, is, is, is in appearance, but none of that counts. But if you do it for truth, if you do it for Jesus, if you do it for your relationship, not to appease Paul and to make Paul look good and to make yourself look good, but you do it for Jesus, he says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. You're scoring on the right scoreboard. Uh, listen to clo- Paul's closing testimony, verse number nine. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. Now, there's an important truth here that every Christian servant is going to need. Paul says, we are thankful to live at a deficit for your benefit. We have loved, we've been loved less. We have given, we've received far less. You never communicated with us concerning giving and receiving. I wronged you in allowing that, but we, we lived at a deficit. We gave more than we ever got. And he says, listen, and we'll gladly do it. He said, we're happy to live at a deficit. And if you're a Christian servant of any caliber, 
understand that in this life, you're not supposed to receive the rewards for your labor. Now, every now and then, someone might notice you and might thank you and might recognize you. And maybe sometimes the people that you serve and invest in may honor to whom honor is due. And that might happen a time or two. But Paul says, that hasn't happened. And I'm okay with that. So long as you are perfected. So long as you are growing. So long as you have been blessed. Uh, Again, verse 9. And we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish even your perfection. Keep reading. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. That's a really important truth. Contextually, what he's saying is, I wrote this letter so I wouldn't have to show up and hurt you. Rather than showing up and bringing all of the power that God has put on me and bringing your destruction, God gave me that power for your edification. And I knew if I showed up, it was going to get ugly, so I wrote you a letter instead. Now, what does that have to teach us? Should we write letters instead of address people face-to-face? I don't know, maybe. Maybe that would help. But the the heartbeat of the, 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 the truth for us today in application is that Paul says, I wanted to soften the blow. And maybe that's through a letter, maybe that's through a phone call, maybe that's through a face-to-face. It isn't saying whenever the, the temperature of a conversation is so hot, we should always write letters. That's, we're, we're seeing observation, not necessarily a prescription. But the prescription is this. Paul says, I could have hurt you more, but I chose to back off. I chose to take a lighter approach in this situation by writing you a letter as opposed to coming. And so it should be with us when there's a conflict and we've got someone dead to rights and, man, we could, we could twist the knife and, man, we could make them look dumb because they were wrong. We should, we should try to be more gracious in that approach. We shouldn't exercise the fullness of our jurisdiction to bring down judgment. We should offer some measure of grace in that reconciliation. Um, verse number 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be good, or be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Um, one of the things I'm noticing in my own study is that Paul likes lists. In fact, we, we went through some of them in Ephesians. We'll go through more of them this morning in the second hour. Um, we'll be in Romans 12. And he just, man, sometimes he just, he kind of gets on that list and he's bam, 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 bam. And there's a lot there we don't necessarily have time to go through. But he says, hey, be perfect, be sincere. Not, not without sin, but be sincere in your, your behavior and your conduct. Don't do it to be approved or to be seen. Be sincere. He says, be of good comfort. He says, hey, I know this is a hard letter to read. Could you imagine being in the church when this letter got read? Titus and Luke apparently show up with this letter. You'll see that in the last verse. Um, they at least wrote it uh, for Paul. And uh, when they show up with the letter, everybody sits in the congregation and the letter gets read. How do you feel if you're in that meeting? Like, If you're one of the chief ones, like you're trying to be sick that day. Um, You're trying to get out of that meeting. And Paul closes by saying, hey, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace and in love. And he says, when you do that, God, the God of peace and love will be with you. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All saints, uh, all the saints salute you. I'm going to opt for the second one. You can opt for the first one if you choose to. I'm going to just salute you. You can. I'm not kissing each other. Um, that's a very culturally relevant thing, not a command of scripture. Um, so, amen. Uh, verse number 14, he says, Grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion. I love that word, community. It's where that root comes from, communion of the Holy Ghost. So we not only have communion with each other, we have communion with the Holy Spirit. Uh, be with you all. Amen. The second epistle to the Corinthians was written from Philippi, a city of Mas- uh, Macedonia by, you notice this kind of unique detail? Who wrote it? Titus and Lucas. So 
That doesn't mean that they were the author of it, but that more than likely they were the ones who transcribed it as Paul spoke. And uh, so there's some things you can kind of, you know, parse out of that. Maybe Paul did have a problem with his eyes, and that's why Luke and Titus wrote it for him. I don't know. There's, there's nothing there. There's a handful of times where that does happen, though, where someone else wrote the letter that Paul sent. And so it's nothing salacious. It's nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, but there's also something to kind of glean from that. Perhaps the brother referred to in chapter 8 is Luke, that Paul sent Titus and the brother. That's what he says in chapter 8. So it could be Luke. Uh, could be a handful of different folks. But that's the letter of 2 Corinthians, a, a letter I wish we didn't need, but we desperately do. And so there's certainly a lot there to chew on and me- meditate on as we move into next week. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed.